Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, once again, reminding subscribers to go to my website, log in, and get our private RSS feed. As I've now said a few times in housekeeping here, there's some changes coming, and I don't want you to miss any subscriber-only content. So, just takes a minute. Sorry for the inconvenience. but. If you're on mobile and go to the subscriber content page on my site, if you're using one of the supported podcatchers, just one click and you will have the right feed. And again, the right feed comes through with a red Making Sense icon, not a black one. And one of the things that will be coming through on the subscriber feed soon are the conversations that I've been having on the Waking Up app. Many of you have asked that I release those jointly on the subscriber feed, and we will be doing that. Also new, as of last podcast, I will be adding an afterword to these conversations, in many cases talking about the effect that the guest had on me. And uh, I did that for the first time with Kathleen Ballou in my last podcast on the white power movement. And some of you objected to what I said there. I, I said at one point that I detected a level of wokeness in her that I didn't want to engage with because I thought it would be a distraction. And a few of you objected that I was landing a blow on my guest when she wasn't there to defend herself. And others found the other side of the coin there and took me to task for not tackling her obvious wokeness and abdicating my responsibility to tackle crazy social justice ideas wherever they surface. I must say I reject both of those opinions. I certainly wasn't landing a blow on her. I don't think I was saying anything she would have disagreed with. It was quite obvious that she viewed things like the history of Western colonialism and resource extraction and nuclear proliferation as part of this picture of white privilege, and white supremacy. She said as much. Anyway, I really wanted to get her best case for how worried we should be about the white power movement, and I really didn't want to get wrapped around the axle of talking about racism in general and the sins of Western civilization. And just to be clear, the afterword is not a place where I will land blows on my guests when they can not defend themselves. I would consider that bad form as well. It's simply the new place in the show where I will sometimes tell you what I was thinking, and perhaps what I didn't say during the conversation, either because I forgot or because I thought it better not to. And in the case of that interview, I really think it was better not to get distracted by a larger conversation on white privilege. And I can assure you there will be more coming on that topic, for better or worse. In fact, there's a podcast I recorded about a year ago with Chelsea Handler that I'll soon be releasing to subscribers. Chelsea just released a documentary on white privilege for Netflix, and she interviewed me for it, again, nearly a year ago. And uh, I decided to record our whole conversation as a podcast at the time. This was in part due to my instincts for self-preservation. I knew that if she used any of the interview, it would just be about five minutes or so, and I couldn't release the podcast until her documentary came out. Now, as it happens, I didn't make the cut 
in her film at all, which, having seen it, was totally understandable. I thought we had a great conversation, but it wasn't one that could easily fit with the story she was wanting to tell there. And here's a two-minute glimpse of it. So let me get this straight. You're doing a documentary on white privilege, and I'm the white guy? Is that the situation we're in? Well, I'm the white girl. It's really about my privilege starting there. You seem very well-versed on the matter and opinionated. Yes. And I need opinions. Okay, good. Well, what could go wrong? How many edibles have you taken now to weather this conversation? No, I haven't taken any today. I wanted to stay sharp for you. Okay. I think the disparity is true because it's it's everywhere. There aren't an right. equal amount of women represented in any industry. Well, that's, but that's not true. From talking to people who claim to not be racist, the first thing out of everyone's mouth is, I'm married to a black woman or I'm friends with a black person or I'm not a racist. And right, right. there and then, that says to me, yeah, you are. Like, no, no, that, that you, you've, been, you've been sold you. this meme. I don't know who invented this. I want to find the genius who invented this meme. But the idea that the, some of my best friends are black defense is not only a bad defense, but a sign of racism. That's bullshit. I think the N word is just not allowed. We're just not allowed to use it. No white person should be able to use it. It just elicits too much hate. It's like calling a gay person the F word. It's, it elicits too much pain. You know, it's what you're using, what people have used to like, oppress them for years. But it's what it, what should elicit the pain is clearly the intention to elicit the pain, right? I hate you and here's how I'm going to say it. I think political correctness is something that just makes people stupid, where they just can't see obvious points, right? I agree with you on that, but I think when the injury is so deep, there needs to be reform. On the subject of virtue signaling, do you think that me doing a documentary on white privilege is virtue signaling? Well, you'll definitely be accused of it. Yeah. Anyway, it was a fun conversation. I will release that to subscribers very soon, along with the conversations I've been having on the Waking Up app. Okay. And now for today's podcast. Today I'm speaking with Andrew McAfee. Andrew is a research scientist at the Center for Digital Business in the MIT Sloan School of Management and he was previously a professor at Harvard Business School. He's co-authored the books The Second Machine Age and Machine Platform Crowd. But today we speak about his new book, More From Less, the surprising story of how we learn to prosper using fewer resources and what happens next. And as you'll hear, this is a very optimistic conversation, unlike many I have here. We talk about the history of human progress and the modern uncoupling of our prosperity from resource consumption. We talk about the pitfalls of capitalism, but also its hidden virtues, and technological progress generally, environmental policy, the future of the developing world, and many other topics. Anyway, this is fascinating material, and as you'll hear, all too consequential, and on balance, quite encouraging. So now, without further delay, I bring you Andrew McAfee. I am here with Andrew McAfee. Andrew, thanks for joining me. Sam, thanks for having me on. So I I was trying to remember, I I think you and I have met at least once at the AI conference in Puerto Rico. Is that that correct? 
Yeah. How many times did you go to that? I just went to the first one and then I went to the Asilomar one, but I didn't go to the, the second one in Puerto Rico. Okay. So you and I are in exactly the same boat. I went to Puerto Rico one and then Asilomar as well. Okay. And then cool. you and I run in, into the hallways, run into each other at the hallways of places like Ted. Right. Okay. We're in similar circles. So uh, listen, it's, it's great to, to get you on the podcast. You've written a very interesting book. The title is More From Less. And um, you're in an unusual spot, along with Steve Pinker, whose recent, recent books have been very positive and, and against the grain of, of many people's expectations. So I can imagine that you haven't really started your book tour yet, but let me predict that when you get in front of audiences, you will, uh, with some regularity, encounter the sour face of incredulity from many people who, who upon reflecting on your thesis, just don't want to buy it. First, tell people who you are and, and your potted intellectual history. How have you come to <laughs> have an opinion on any of these matters we're going to talk about? <laughs> and you know that opinions are in, not in short supply anywhere in academia. No. My name is Andy McAfee, and I am a scientist at MIT. I uh, used to be at Harvard, and I moved down the river in Cambridge, Massachusetts about a decade ago. And I just try to study and understand where all of this technology, all this tech progress is taking it. So Sam, like you know, with my co-author and my friend, Eric Brynjolfsson, he and I have written a couple of books together about this main topic. One was called The Second Machine Age. The second one was called Machine Platform Crowd about you know the, the, the job, the wage, the labor force impacts, and then the business model impacts of all this crazy new technology. And then this new book that I've got out called More From Less is a little bit of a pivot, but it's still a technology book. It's trying to convey the story of how our relationship with the planet that we all live on has changed in some pretty fundamental ways, in large part because of technology. Right, right. And your your background, if I recall, is in somewhere in engineering, and then you kind of went through business school. And give me the, the academic version of yourself. Yeah, I am a mechanical engineer from MIT. I got my MBA from MIT about, you know, 63 years ago. And then I did my doctorate at Harvard at the business school, taught at the business school at Harvard for about a decade, right. and then came back to my roots, came back home to MIT about a decade ago. Right. So you're your basic thesis, as I understand it in this book, is that finally our prosperity has become decoupled from our consumption of resources. So we, you know, as you put it, we've essentially exchanged bits for atoms or atoms for bits. And this is I mean, this is an incredibly hopeful thesis. I mean, you, you you certainly acknowledge many of the bad things we've done and and are continuing to do, but you you cite the what you call the four horsemen of the optimist and these i just want to run through these because this is a, a great way to structure the unfolding of your thesis yeah you talk about tech progress capitalism public awareness and responsive government and and the, each of those two the first two and the, and the latter two are kind of dyads of a sort i mean tech progress and capitalism go hand in hand and public awareness and responsive government seem to also be joined at the hip in some way so Let's just start with the progress we've made. How have we, um, how have we gotten here? Yeah, Sammy, you just did a beautiful job of delivering both the what and the why of this book that I've written. The what, like you just said, 
is that we have finally learned how to decouple growing our prosperity, you know, increasing the size of our economies, having people lead longer and healthier and more prosperous lives. That's, that's a really important thing to do. Another really important thing to do is take better care of the planet Earth. And there used to be a pretty sharp trade-off between those two things. And in the industrial era, we massively increased human prosperity, but we massively increased our footprint on our planet as well. It's just this unignorable story about the industrial era that got kicked off with the Industrial Revolution in about 1776. And so before I started working on this book, I kind of had this you know, fundamental assumption in the back of my head that that's how the world worked. We had to take more from the earth in order to have more human prosperity, bigger human populations, bigger human economies. And what I learned and what I've come to firmly believe is that's just not the case anymore. So you use the word decouple, which is exactly right. We have decoupled increasing our human prosperity from taking more from the earth year after year. With data from America shows we've got a large, technically sophisticated economy that's responsible for about 25% of the world economy. We're increasing our prosperity. And in just about all the ways that I can think of that matter, we are leaving a lighter footprint on the planet Earth. And I kind of thought that was a big deal, this transition from mm. taking more from the Earth to taking less. is kind of an important transition. So I thought it merited a book. It's a huge transition because it, so you can tell the story of, of our technological progress prior to this transition. And it is, it is a story of progress nonetheless, but of a fairly rapacious extraction of resources and a, a soiling of our own nest to a degree that is scarcely sustainable. But I mean, you know, your book, you know, like my, my friend Steve Pinker's book, is, is filled with these, with some very happy graphs where you see the, these, the lines of extraction and, and you know, your resource use diverge from the line of increase in prosperity. But before we get to the, the happy moment, let's, maybe let's just spend a few <laughs> minutes on, on just what progress we made, even in the days when the progress was, was wasteful and polluting. Yeah. And you mentioned Steve Pinker, and I, I'm very, very proud to join his tribe of evidence-driven optimists about the state of the world. And Pinker makes the case that the Enlightenment did a great deal of really wonderful things for the, the course of human progress. I just want to add to that chorus with this book by saying something that people have said before, which was the Industrial Revolution, which was this point in time where we learned how to access the crazy amounts of energy stored in fossil fuels all around the world. That's kind of, for me, that's the heart of the Industrial Revolution. This put us onto just a categorically different trajectory. And my favorite way to show that, and I, I show this in the book, is by looking at a kind of one graph that shows population versus prosperity in England for hundreds of years. Mm. And you and I probably use the word Malthusian as, a, as an insult to somebody these days, because the, what Malthus said in the late 18th century was essentially, we're all going to starve because we can't grow enough food to feed everybody. And he was just unbelievably wrong about that. One of the weirdest things I learned when writing this book was that Malthus was right as a historian. Right. And the, the great way to show that is to chart population versus prosperity in England from about 1200 to about 1800. And we have pretty good data. We can reconstruct what that looks like. And you just see a pendulum swinging back and forth. The only times that the English were relatively prosperous was when there were relatively few of them. 
And when there are a lot of English people, they were all kind of poor. And the only decent explanation for that phenomenon is there was kind of a hard ceiling on the amount of stuff you could take from the earth, primarily food. And when there are too many people and not enough to go around, everybody's kind of poor. When population goes down, everybody can be a bit richer until they bump up against that ceiling. So from 1200 to 1800, Malthus looks like a genius. And now we use his name as an adjective for dead flat wrong because of the Industrial Revolution and the Industrial Era. When we got out of that trade-off, because of the steam engine and a bunch of other inventions and then internal combustion, we just harnessed the world's energy. And you can watch human population and human prosperity increase together for the very first time ever in human history and increase at rates that we've never, ever seen before. And it almost doesn't matter what kind of evidence you look at, whether it's global population, Hmm. GDP per capita, income growth, it kind of doesn't matter. You see the same story, which is this almost horizontal line of nothing really interesting happening, and then an almost vertical line of, oh my God, we've never seen prosperity increase like this before. And that's the story of the industrial era. That, that's, you know, and, the, and we, I say in the book, the industrial era was not fantastic for everybody at every point in time. Amen to that. We can talk about some of the dark side there. But it was this unprecedented chapter in human history. The, the trade-off that we made, kind of you know, implicitly without thinking a lot about it, is that, as you point out, we took more from the planet to generate that prosperity year after year. And we beat up the planet in all kinds of fundamental ways year after year. And we did it almost in lockstep with our prosperity growth. You can Mm -hmm. just graph the size of the economy versus how much we took from the earth. And it's kind of a one-to-one relationship. And in the years leading up to, call it the first Earth Day in 1970, you can graph things like how polluted the skies over American cities were, again, versus the economic growth. And that relationship is way too tight. It's just incredibly clear that we took more from the earth and we fouled it. We befouled it more year after year to generate this prosperity. Yeah. So just just looking back, you have some arresting images and phrases in the book here, which, you know, I think this kind of thinking is is commonplace among engineers and, and perhaps physicists. But for most of us who are don't spend a lot of time in in those fields a very simple statement like prior to the industrial revolution the only way for a human being to move anything on earth was with muscle power either human or animal for literally tens of thousands of years generation after generation you know before wind and water came online all we had was just digging by hand Right. To do we anything. Dig trenches, and maybe we, we domesticated the ox and right. the horse to, to drag our plows. Yeah. And that was it. Again, it, it is an obvious point, but when you think of what it was like to live year after year, life after life, I mean, generation after generation, where nobody had ever met anyone who ever imagined things could be <laughs> exactly. different. Exactly. Right? You know, it's just, just this, this notion that a better future was ahead of us. I don't think that's really part of the historical record. No, no. And you could drop someone into any 10,000-year interval, and nothing would be different. They would have recognized all the same tools and you know, cultural practices. Everyone's dying from the same diseases that are, you know, as yet, not even dimly understood. It clearly didn't have to be that way, because it, it is now not that way. And 
whatever progress we make from here is likewise also not guaranteed. I mean, we're just, you know, we're, we're functioning, you know, within the horizon of the known and struggling to push that back with all of our scientific pursuits, but we can't take anything for granted. And to look back on the history of the species is to be amazed at just how long it took to make progress of any kind. Exactly right. And to look back and be incredibly grateful that you don't live in that period, or or at least I am. Sam, I'm sure you come across people who kind of long for the good old days before industrialization and urbanization and technology, and they want to go back to a simpler time. Wow, do I not want to go back to that simpler time? One of the striking statistics that I put in the book is, as far as we can tell, prior to 1800, global life expectancy was about 28 and a half years. Mm. And no region on the planet had a global life exp- had a life expectancy greater than I think 35 years. So I, I put a quote from Hobbes from Leviathan in, in the book. Our lives really were nasty, solitary, brutish, and short. The number of kids that died in infancy, the, the percentage of mothers that died in childbirth, the disease burden, skeletons we, that we've unearthed from that time were just a lot shorter and more stunted. I literally can't understand people who want to go back to that time. Yeah, I mean, ju- just to uh, correct the usual association with those stats, it's not that more or less everyone died at 30. Obviously, the people lived longer than that, although they didn't live to the biblical ages that are advertised. But <laughs> that really is a, a story of just how many children died right. before the age of five. I mean, that was just That's right. absolutely commonplace, even you know within 150 years ago. I mean, it was really... As you detail in your book, the advent of indoor plumbing is probably the biggest gain there. I mean, just the number of lives saved by um, getting access to clean water. And, you know, once we also got some notion that we should be washing our hands with it before we eat or perform surgery or deliver babies, that was <laughs> also helpful. Yeah. And it's one of the neat things that I learned researching the book is my list of the important technologies of the the Industrial Revolution certainly would have included steam power and electrification and the internal combustion engine. And Bob Gordon, a really, really good economist at Northwestern, would add indoor plumbing to that list. And at first, I was like, Bob, come on. That's at an entirely different level of, of importance here. And Sam, you're absolutely right. It's probably at the top of that list of important things to do because being able to get clean water and, and take your waste away was so unbelievably important for human health, for longevity, for maternal and child mortality. You know, thank heaven we have indoor plumbing. I found this amazing quote from a Tennessee farmer in the 1930s who said, the, be- the best thing in the world is to have the love of God in your heart. The second best thing in the world is to have electricity in your home. And there's also the question of what you're eating in that home. And, and as you discuss the the advent of nitrogen-based fertilizers and the, the Haber-Bosch process that delivered those. I mean, that's, you know, that accounts for the sustainable growth of human population to an amazing degree. I, I think that the statistic was something like 45% of people alive owe their existence to the, our ability to manufacture fertilizer. And also just the, the growth in human population is is a very surprising curve. I mean, it, it took something like 200,000 years to get us to our first billion people in 1928. And then it was like 31 years to the next billion, and then 15, and then I think it was 12 and 11. 
after that. I had forgotten that the um, the company BASF was involved in this in the, in the fertilizer chemistry, or is derived from uh, from the, you know, the, the Haber Bosch guys. And uh, I remember those ads from probably the '80s or '90s where BASF would come on television, or, or you know, it would be a trailer at a movie, and they would say, you know, we don't make a lot of the products you buy. We make a lot of the products you buy better. But they could have well have said, there are three billion of you poor bastards who wouldn't exist without us. Or <laughs> There's an starving excellent chance you're here because of us. Right. Yeah. Okay, so th- this has been tech progress up to the point of the decoupling. What, what explain the decoupling? How has that, or, or, do, or should we talk about capitalism before you get into that? Let me try to bring in capitalism here okay. because, you know, BASF was out to make a buck. And maybe it's nice marketing to say that they were interested in improving our lives. This was a profit-seeking company, as was the company that James Watt founded to commercialize the steam engine, as was Daimler-Benz, founded by one of the main people behind the internal combustion engine. And one other thing that the Industrial Revolution gave us, or that that came along very closely in time to the, the invention of the steam engine, were things like robust patents and joint stock companies and limited liability corporations and all of these elements of what you and I would now call the capitalist system, right? And so the point I make in the book was that capitalism and tech progress are a very, very natural pair. They're just a one-two punch and they feed off each other. And what we saw for the first 170 plus years of the industrial era was they fed off each other. They increased our prosperity and our population. This is why I think Marx was just so dead flat wrong. Right. However, this one-two punch absolutely enabled us and caused us to tread more heavily on the planet, to you know increase the human footprint on the planet. As we went around trying to make a buck and trying to grow our markets, we used very powerful technologies to make more fertilizer. That means planting more acres of cropland. That means taking more water for agriculture. We dug more mines. We chopped down more forests. We took more resources out of the earth. We definitely went looking for fossil fuel all over the planet. So any way that you'd want to measure the human footprint or the human impact on the planet, it was going up because of this one-two punch of industrial capitalism and tech progress. And then a couple of the really unpleasant side effects were also going up over time. And pollution is exhibit A for me. And then exhibit A prime, probably at least as important, was we exploited our fellow creatures to a huge extent. We made the passenger pigeon extinct in America. This was a a bird that existed in such huge numbers that James Audubon saw a flock that blotted out the sun. He said it took days to pass overhead. That Mm. was early in the 19th century. By 1914, the very last passenger pigeon died in a zoo in Cincinnati. So this notion that we took good care of the animals we share the planet with, this is just wrong for the industrial era. We damn near made many species of whale extinct. And then something else I learned that I didn't know, we came in North America, we came really close to wiping out the beaver, the Canada goose, the white-tailed deer, the black bear, these iconic species, and they're very much part of our landscape today, thank heaven. Man, we, we came quite close to wiping these things out because our appetites were voracious, kind of indiscriminate, and growing year after year. And again, I just think of this one-two punch of you know industri- industrial turbocharged capitalism and more and more powerful technology all the time. 
and you use the adjective, you know, voracious to describe economic growth, then I keep on thinking of kind of the cookie monster economy where it just went om nom 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 and, and ate up everything that that all these inputs that it could think of. I think I used rapacious. Rapacious. That's yeah. even better. Yeah, because yeah. it's true. Like, let's be super honest. Capitalism is a greedy process. There's just no other way to say it. And it caused us to kind of, you know, take more from the earth, dump whatever we didn't want off to the side. And you can point to these environmental dark sides of the industrial era, and you'd be exactly accurate about it. And for me, that, that helps me understand the dawn of the environmental movement and the in amazing amount of energy behind the first Earth Day in April of 1970. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's linger on the convergence of tech progress and capitalism and, and the synergy there. And I think we should say more about the problems, because I mean, certainly capitalism has a very bad rap in many circles these days. And it's despite the happy trend you've discussed in your book, which is the decoupling. And it takes as its object, I mean, the criticism of capitalism takes as its object wealth inequality, which seems to be growing even though, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's, it's not growing globally, but within countries it, it is growing. That's exactly right. That's the right way to think about it. First, let's talk about how we how these lines diverge. You know, resource extraction and waste and pollution from increasing prosperity. But then, why why is this not yet a a perfectly happy picture of sane environmental policy aligned incentives and uh, you know a, a rising tide that lifts all boats? Yeah. So you've asked a couple different times already, what changed? How is it that we're now getting more from less, if, if, if the title of my book is at all accurate? And my super short, but I think not too short, explanation of what changed, how we moved from this voracious, rapacious, cookie monster, industrial era economy to what I'm going to call the second machine age, because that's what Eric and I called our earlier book, where I am asserting we continue to grow our economy and our population and our prosperity, but we're now treading more lightly on the planet. Okay, so your $64,000 question is, what changed? My very short answer to that is, we invented the computer. And we finally invented this technology that lets us find all of these different ways, all of these overlapping, complementary ways to get more from less, to get more prosperity from less metal less fertilizer, less water, less cropland, less of all of these material inputs to the economy. And let me give you a couple different point examples of that. When we first introduced aluminum cans, they were a big deal because they were probably healthier and lighter and cheaper than the tin-lined steel cans that they replaced. And all of us now take aluminum cans for granted. You know, all the beer, all the, the soda that we drink, or a lot of it comes in an aluminum can. That can now is about one-fifth the weight of the first generation of aluminum cans. And I would have thought you'd make a couple tweaks to the first generation aluminum can, and that's about as light as you could get. It turns out that's dead flat wrong. You can get down to about a fifth of the initial weight. Hmm. And the only way that I can understand that you do that is you have engineers in front of their CAD terminals, in front of their computer-aided design terminals just doing simulation after simulation. If we make it this way, can it bear all the weight? Will it satisfy all the requirements? And can we save a couple tenths of a penny 
you know, per 100 cans on the aluminum that we've got to spend money on to deliver our beer to some consumer out there. The thing to keep in mind is, is twofold. That consumer doesn't get any value from the aluminum. All, all that guy wants is to drink a beer. And the beverage company would really prefer to spend absolutely no money on that aluminum. They want to get that down as close to zero as possible. So capitalism, like we've already discussed, is this voracious thing. It's a relentless quest for profits. The flip side of that and where the news starts to turn good is that it's also a voracious quest to save a buck. A penny saved is a penny earned. So companies are really eager to hire a couple engineers to sit in front of CAD terminals and figure out how to make an, an aluminum can lighter. So that's a, that's a pretty direct way to see yeah. how digital tech progress will help us save on resources. I have a, a friend who's had a really long career. And a couple of years ago, I was discussing the early stages of this book with him. And he said, oh, I've got a great example for you. Uh, he said, when I started my career, I, I worked for a conglomerate that owned a railroad. And he said, I started my career in 1968. And my very first task as a bright young guy working in this company was to figure out where more of our boxcars were across the country. And I looked at him, I said, what are you talking about? He said, look, in 1968, Chicago Northwest Railway, CNW, had no way to know where its rolling stock, its, stock, its, its locomotives and its boxcars were around the country. There was no such thing as a, an RFID tag or a sensor network or any of that stuff. This was the pre-digital era by and large. And he said the lore inside the company at that point was that 5% of our boxcars moved on, every, on any given day. And it's not that the other 95% needed to rest. We didn't know where they were. We couldn't move them around the country deliberately. And he said, look, it was abundantly clear to all of us that if we could increase that 5% just to 10%, we would only need half as many boxcars to do all of our business. That is a massive, massive savings on these 30-ton you know, steel behemoths sitting out there. So he said it was well worth our time to invest in getting that percentage up. And the way you got that percentage up in 1968 was you hired people to stand at railroad crossings and watch trains go by and see if they could spot any C&W cars. Then they'd telephone or telegraph back to headquarters what they saw. And you'd hire people to do audits of freight yards and things like that. And then he said, my team started to hear about this thing called the computer. We started to think that might be useful. We can fast forward to today. I'm pretty sure that every single boxcar in America has at least one RFID sensor on it. There are all these trackside sensors everywhere that count, that, that keep track of which cars. I'd be amazed if every railroad in the country today didn't know where its stock was with great precision at every point in time. Because of that, you just don't need as many boxcars. Right. So you start, you start to see these examples triangulating and coming together. I think the single most vivid one was a story that I read about a retired newspaper man in Buffalo whose idea of a good time was to go around to garage sales and buy stuff that might tell him something about Buffalo's history. So he bought a stack of Buffalo News newspapers from 1991 for, I don't know, less than five bucks. And he was flipping through them and he came across a Radio Shack ad from 1991. And this guy made a really interesting observation. His name was Steve Sashan. He said there were 15 gizmos on this Radio Shack ad from 1991. He said, 13 of them have vanished into the phone that I carry in my pocket all the time. Mm. And he was talking about a camcorder and a camera 
and a cordless phone and an answering machine and a Walkman and all these different things. And he's absolutely right. They've just kind of vanished down into this very small, very light thing that we carry around with us all the time. And so mentally, if I weigh those 13 different devices and I think about how many resources of different kinds went into those 13 and I swap it out for the one smartphone, I start to understand the graphs that appear in the book and why America is now year by year using less, and I don't mean less per capita, less per American, I mean less in aggregate Mm -hmm. of really important materials like gold, nickel, steel, fertilizer, water for agriculture, timber, paper, cropland, you know, kind of the, the material who's who of how you make an economy. The trend line has changed. And they're now going, in general, down year after year. And lurking in the back of all these material savings, I see tech progress coupled with capitalism, which is a desire, not only is it a desire to increase profits, and a great, very straightforward one-to-one way to increase a profit is to cut a cost. Right. And materials cost money. Okay. So let me um, see if I can channel some of the concerns of people who um, will hear what you just said as yet more techno happy talk and um, they don't want to get on the ride toward, <laughs> toward yep. utopia that you seem to be beckoning them toward. So, so even in what you just said, there are echoes of problems that people are, are now worried about. So we, I doubt anyone is especially sentimental about the job of walking the, the nation's train tracks looking for boxcars. But you did just cite one job that has been irrevocably ceded to uh, the power of automation and computation, right? So this is a trend that many people, I think, are rightly worried about, that, we, that there's no guarantee that the jobs we automate away will be replaced by new ones that people will, will prefer or, they can be, or that they can be readily trained for or retrained for. So um, there's still a, a dynamic that is something like a, at least in certain sectors, it's disconcertingly like a, a winner-take-all phenomenon where it's just you're, you're, you're seeing fantastic accretions of wealth and wages either not growing or, or declining for the better part of humanity or at least the better part of the middle class and lower middle class in the U.S. and uh, who knows what's happening in, in other countries. So there's that concern that the that this invisible hand that is is working to our benefit in, in in many ways with capitalism people are not becoming saints they're not operating by they haven't had new ethical modules installed they're just trying to ma- make a buck and save a buck yep and yet the breakthroughs in technology are allowing them to do this in a way that is actually better for everyone but there's still this fact that there's the haves and have-nots in this system, and then there are the the negative externalities that the market just can't correct for. Like you know, and this is these are things you discuss in your book, like pollution. How do we acknowledge the the problems yet to be solved, and and how do we solve them? Yeah, and I do try to spend a decent chunk of the book not just cheerleading for capitalism and tech progress. I think it's important to do that because they're getting yeah. a bad rap in some ways, but. There's a difference between being an optimist and being a utopian or a Pollyanna. And I'm trying very hard not to be a utopian or a Pollyanna. And you just rattled off a number of really important cautions and really important challenges 
that we are confronting today and that I think are going to get more pointed as we go forward. One of the one of the most good news, bad news graphs that I put in the book is a, a reproduction of the famous elephant graph that Christopher Lasker and Bronko Milanovic wrote about in a World Bank report that came out in 2012. And it kind of went unnoticed at first. And then people started looking and they're like, wait a minute, this is a big deal. And all kinds of controversy has has emerged about how you calculate it, how you draw it correctly. And so there have been revisions to it. But let me try to visually describe the elephant graph. And the version that I rely on the most looks like the head of an elephant with an upraised trunk. And what I mean by that is, you know, this thing's got a back. It's got kind of a hump that looks like the, the forehead of an elephant. And then it drops down super sharply. And then it rises super sharply toward the end. And that's, for me, that's, you know, the, the, where the head drops off and the upraised trunk starts. Mm. And what that is a graph of is essentially if you took all the people in the world in 1988 and you lined them up from lowest income to highest income, and then you looked at how much their real incomes changed over the next 20 years, over the next generation, and then you plotted that increase or decrease on a graph the elephant is what you would wind up with. The elephant graph is what you would get. And what that shows is that for almost all of humanity, almost all of humanity is either that flat back of the elephant, which is right about at 50-ish percent real growth in income. Then there's kind of the elephant's head where you're doing even better. The increase is even bigger. The big divot and then the upraised trunk, the end of the trunk, are the wealthiest people in the world in 1988, who, to the surprise of nobody, we're doing much better in 2008. And the really, the, the key part of the graph is obviously that divot, the divot between the head of the elephant and the upraised trunk of the elephant. Mm -hmm. And that divot represents the middle, essentially the lower middle class to middle class in the rich world. And that is a really important group to focus on for two main reasons. Number one, they are the low point on that graph. And in every version of the graph that I've seen, that group is, is right there at the bottom. And we can debate exactly how good or bad their increase in income was, but they are the globally least big gainers in income over that generation. And by some measures, they didn't gain very much at all. So when we hear about wage stagnation, that's really the group that we're talking about, is right. that middle class in the wealthy world, who when they look Anywhere else on that graph, they can look down and they see everyone from you know, peasant farmers in India to urbanized Chinese assembly line workers, they're all doing a lot better, a lot better than they were 20 years ago. If they look up at the upraised trunk of the elephant, those are Wall Street people, Silicon Valley venture capitalists, you know, the, the, the global elite. They're doing much better as well. And then that person in the middle class in the rich world says, wait a minute, I'm, I'm lagging way behind this, this global tide that's lifting other boats here. And they're saying that accurately. The other important thing about the, the middle class in the rich world, they are a very, very important demographic group, not just because there are so, they're so many of them. And Sam, not just because you and I happen to come from that demographic group, but they are really important for electing the leaders of the rich world. And the leaders of the rich world have a huge influence on the course of things all across the globe. And so that graph really helps me understand the rise in you know, populism, demagoguery, mm -hmm. authoritarianism around lots of rich world countries. 
okay, you've got that demographic group that is making an accurate assessment about how they've been doing vis-a-vis a lot of other people around the world, and there's some real discontent there going on. And as much as I'm sitting here cheerleading for global markets and for tech progress, those things are part of the reason why that middle class has not seen incomes go up as much. It turns out that the middle class in the rich world has been doing routine work. That's, that's the backbone of the middle class. That's an assembly line worker or payroll clerk or somebody like that. Those jobs are vanishing quite quickly to both globalization and automation. And the, those old-fashioned jobs are not coming back. So one of the challenges that, like you know, Eric and I have written extensively about, it was a subject, big subject in our book, The Second Machine Age, and I bring it up again here, is that there are people and there are communities getting left behind as tech progress and capitalism race ahead. And figuring out what to do about that is really urgent homework. And it's some of the toughest challenges, it's one of the toughest challenges ahead of us because the toolkit for dealing with communities and people who are getting left behind, it's not a very full toolkit. And the track record of trying to help communities that have fallen on hard times, the track record is not super impressive. So we've got some real homework ahead of us there. Right, right. And there's just the psychological fact that a person or group's sense of whether they're doing well or badly is going to be, as you say, comparative. Even if all boats were rising with the same tide, if some are rising much, much faster, you would still have many unhappy people Yeah, in whatever class is, is lagging. And to add on to that, if people start to believe that the bargain that they signed up for is not the bargain that they're getting, again, the, the perceptions can turn negative really, really quickly. And I put in the book this wonderful research from different sociologists that came out way before the 2016 election, way before the Trump phenomenon happened, where they spent time with these, some of these communities that were on the bubble, and they kept reporting back that the, the perceptions, the resentment, the anger at how they feel like their bargains are not getting honored and that everybody else is kind of skipping ahead of them in line. People were reporting on this in 2007, 2008. I think we didn't listen carefully enough. So I want to talk about the the other two horsemen of the optimist, public awareness and responsive government. But before we get there, and I I think we we should say something about climate change, which is the big negative externality that many of us can't seem to admit even exists. So we, we have a problem there that's intellectual and political and, and seems especially intractable. But before we jump to that, what about the concern that even if we are in the process of putting our house in order, what we're facing now is a developing world that is just, perhaps despite everyone's best intentions, destined to recapitulate the the wasteful industrial revolution fed course of progress that we have traversed. And so you have China and India burgeoning in all the dirty ways that we did, but with many more people involved. What's the fix for getting the developing world on a cleaner, happier path of the sort that we are now on? It's a great question. Because our planet cannot take any more industrial revolutions the way that we had them play out. And our planet especially can't take more industrial revolutions if they involve a billion people, 1.4 billion people, India, China levels of population. So 
you bring up this excellent question, we can't see how are we going to avoid watching this movie again? And one of the main ways that I think we're going to avoid watching this movie again is by making sure that the currently low-income world has access to very, very different technologies than we had when we were at similar income levels. And, and I think that's going to happen. There is just no way that India or Nigeria is going to lay copper all over the country to do telecommunications. Mm -hmm. they, they, that'd be economically ridiculous. They're just not going to do it. I keep on seeing encouraging things about how low-income countries, as they try to bring energy to their people, are going to build fewer coal plants per capita than America and Europe did at similar income levels. They just have better technologies open to them. There's no way, there's just no way that Bangladeshi and Nigerians and Chinese are going to be taking a lot of film photographs. It's just not a thing that they're going to do. And as railroads and airlines and whatnot disperse across those countries, they're not going to have the phenomenon where they only know where 5% of their inventory is every mm. day. They're just going to start from a much, much higher baseline of performance in being able to track and optimize things. So the reason I don't think we're going to see an industrial revolution in the currently low-income world that plays out the same way ours did is because we've got, you know, 200 plus years of better technology, and we're not going to give it to low-income countries because we're altruistic. They're going to demand it because it's the cheapest solution. It's the most effective solution out there. They have no more desire to waste money than we did at that point in time. Right. So I, I, what I'm not saying to your earlier point is that things are all going to be fine or that we're going to address really, really deep challenges like gl global warming quickly enough. I, I'm not a Pollyanna. I'm not an optimist about that. We are not doing enough on that particular challenge. But on this more specific challenge of are we going to eat up the world as today's low-income countries become wealthier, I'll take bets. I'm very confident that we're not. In addition to which, I kind of think that they are going to start demanding less pollution early in their development than we did. It really took Earth Day and the environmental movement for us to even start thinking about, you know, limiting pollution or take or putting animals off outside the market system and letting them re rebuild their populations. The environmental movement was kind of late coming. We were a rich country already. I don't think that's going to be the case in a lot of low-income countries. And China tells me so many interesting things. China has strict bans in place now on buying, selling, or owning rhino and tiger products. These are you know, traditionally very important products for some kinds of, of medicine. They're, people want them. The government has a ban in place. Yao Ming is going around making films about how we need to take better care of elephants and not trade in ivory. Uh, he said he had a bond with Africa because animals there are about the same size he mm -hmm. is. That's great. I think that we see pretty clearly that China is doing some really environmentally smart things way earlier in its economic trajectory than we did. The Chinese government took really effective, kind of draconian, but very effective anti-air pollution measures. And in four years, they brought their particulate pollution levels down by 30% across the country. It took the United States 12 years after the passage of the Clean Air Act to get that same level of reduction. And we were a much richer country at the time. Right. So again, I want to draw a distinction between being a Pollyanna and being an optimist. The reason I'm an optimist is I see today's low-income countries behaving very differently and better than 
today's rich countries did when they were low-income countries. And so my conclusion from that is, man, let's help them get rich quicker. Let's accelerate that development. They're going to go through the material, the resource transition and start getting more from less. And when people get rich, they start caring. They have the luxury or the bandwidth to care about their environment, to care about their fellow creatures better. Indira Gandhi said in the 70s, I believe, poverty is the greatest polluter. Fantastic. Let's take that seriously. Let's try to drive out the poverty. We're not going to use up the world. We'll do the opposite if we can make other countries rich. Do you think technological progress and capitalism are sufficient there, or is or will altruism be part of the solution? I mean, do we need to share technology with the developing world in ways that are not strictly in anyone's financial interest? Let me give you a qualified maybe for that. The biggest way that I can think of is I think the single most effective thing, the two most effective things we could do to combat global warming are to have an actual carbon tax that, that matters in the biggest carbon polluting countries around the world. And on the technology front, I am, I've become very strongly pro-nuclear as a result mm-hmm. of working on this book. What I would love to do is have some jointly financed multi-country effort to invent and then deploy a new class of nuclear reactor. And Sam, you know they're out there, right? These are yeah. things that Bill Gates talks about a lot that are modular, they're smaller, they're much, much safer, their waste doesn't, they don't really put out the same kind of waste that you can use as a weapon that our current generation of reactors does. So these are massively superior technologies. I think there might be a case or a point for a global patent bank or a global intellectual property bank around this new category of reactor to go say to everybody, hey, you know, you don't have to, I'm not going to charge you a royalty for these fundamental technologies. Just go do this and on your energy path, get to low carbon, zero carbon as quickly as you can. There's a little, maybe you could call that altruism. I would call that we all want to live on a planet that's, that's not overheating. Right. But aside from a couple examples like that, again, I think capitalism, I think market mechanisms will be sufficient to give really powerful technologies to low-income countries. Now, I'm not saying there's no point in international aid or in NGOs or anything. That's, that's a separate category of argument. But market mechanisms will bring really good technology to currently low-income people and countries. But can I talk a little bit about the other pair of horsemen? Because yeah. I've, been, I've been cheerleading for capitalism and tech progress, as, as I mean to do. That's a main point of the book. But I keep on using this image of an Econ 101 textbook because every Econ 101 student learns in chapter one that markets are the best way to allocate goods and services. What they learn in chapter two of their decent Econ 101 class is that markets are imperfect and you can't rely on them to do everything that you want to have done. And the first exhibit is always pollution. And the idea there is that if it's free to pollute, we just can't rely on corporate goodwill not to pollute. And so pollution is always the classic, you, you use this phrase a couple of times, the negative externality, which is a fancy way of saying something that happens because of an economic transaction that where either the benefits or the cost do not directly go to the people involved in that transaction. So to try to make that concrete in the book, I say, look, if I walk down the street to my corner store in my neighborhood and buy some milk, there's not a lot of externality there. The store owner benefits, I get the milk, that's awesome. However, if the dairy that produces that milk doesn't clean up after its cows, 
the neighbors who live downwind are going to suffer. And they're not doing any business with the dairy, let's say. So they can't choose to take their business elsewhere, but they're still suffering because of the nasty smell. Yeah. That's, a, that's an externality. And these things crop up all over the place. Hey, actually, one, one point I'd like to add to this is that you know, I often find among libertarians who you know, take a, almost as a religious precept that the market is the best way of correcting for every glitch in human experience, they are incredibly carefree around this point of negative externality. So like if, you know, I mean, just, just to make this clear, if, you're, if your neighbor is burning trash in his yard and this, you know, toxic smoke of, you know, plastic bags and everything else he's burning is wafting through your bedroom window, in a libertarian world where you believe that, that the market should correct for everything, you have to price that in. So the, the, right. the neighbor should be forced to compensate you for the imposition on your health and your experience. But that's not the way most libertarians view our economy and, and, and the, you know, our reliance on fossil fuels and climate change and, and the epidemiological effects of, of air pollution, right? I mean, just the, the, they don't seem eager to have those effects priced in to the system. And if they w would be priced in, the, the economic wisdom of relying on fossil fuels would go completely out the window in, in many cases, right? So it's, it's you know, if you're going to compare something like solar to coal or, you know, natural gas unfavorably as a libertarian, the only honest way to do that is to actually price in the, the health and climate consequences of relying on, on the dirty fuels. And I find there are surprisingly few takers for that. Yeah, and you bring up this this fundamental point. I love talking to libertarians because they have a worldview and they push my thinking a lot in some really helpful ways. I have the same experience you do when you talk to kind of an ideologue libertarian who believes that government never has any role to play. This idea of an externality trips them up like almost nothing else does because then they start to stammer and stutter and give you these wildly implausible things why we won't have pollution in a libertarian economic paradise. And I just don't buy it. And so you bring up the, the Econ 101 solution to these things, which is, hey, if you love markets so much, and you should, there's a lot of great reasons to love markets, great, put pollution inside the market. But, but the, the government is the thing that does that, it, that right. attaches a price to a ton of carbon, because that ton of carbon, if it's just pollution, doesn't have a price. So companies feel free to put out as many tons as they want. The idea behind a carbon tax is, is to make, to bring us closer to that libertarian paradise where markets work extremely well, but put pollution inside that market and let companies deal with that. And the imagery that I always use is that companies run from increased costs like antelope run when they smell a lion. It's just remarkable how quickly they'll change their activities. Mm. So like you know, Bill Nordhaus won the Nobel, shared the Nobel Prize in economics last year, in large part because of his work on global warming and on his solution. And Nordhaus's brilliant wrinkle, and again, this gets it closer to kind of a libertarian paradise, was to have a revenue neutral carbon tax. And what that means is, let's say that you don't trust the government to spend your tax money very, very effectively or efficiently. Great. A revenue neutral carbon tax says the government is just a pass through entity. It collects all the money from everybody who's emitting carbon, and then it turns around and distributes that money directly to the citizens or the people in the country 
in the form of what's called a carbon dividend. Like here's your check because of all the carbon that happened. And you probably want to configure that carbon dividend so that the dividend is bigger for lower income people who are hit mm -hmm. harder by these increased costs out there. And then the naive thing to think is, yeah, that hasn't solved the problem at all. You're putting more money in people's pockets. They're just going to go buy more stuff that pollutes. And I think chapter four or five of your Econ 101 textbook talks about the difference between income effects and substitution effects. In other words, that when you get richer, you spend maybe you spend money in exactly the same way you did when you were more poor, unless the relative costs of things have changed. So if your gallon of gas suddenly costs a lot more, even if you're, you become richer because of your carbon dividend, you're going to spend money away from that gallon of gas. You're going to spend money on other things. And it's just really clear from, from Econ 101 and a lot more that led to Nobel Prizes that a revenue neutral carbon tax that, raised, that increases gradually over time because you want businesses to, to have more and more incentive not to put carbon in the atmosphere. Man, that, that's weapon number one. That is the best tool for fighting global warming. And like the amount of enthusiasm for it is way too low, which brings to the second pair of forces, the, the, the other two horsemen of the optimist for me are public awareness. Global warming is bad. We, today, we have school kids leaving school and marching all over the world yeah. to demand action on this. That's a great example of public awareness coupled with responsive governments. And by that, I mean governments who respond to the will of their people and they respond with good ideas. And their, and their activities, they can do things in the same way that a car is responsive. In other words, it does what you want it to do. So when I have that one-two punch, when both those are working, then I start to get calm about the things that markets don't take care of, which for me are primarily pollution and primarily putting animals outside of the market system. We decided we didn't want to kill all the whales. Public awareness was hugely increased. Remember that old Judy Collins song where she did a duet with a humpback? That changed a lot of people's minds. I think I missed and that. But... I think I actually think I'm pretty sure it was Judy Collins. Uh -huh. uh, and there's a humpback in the background. Right. So we had the Marine Mammal Protection Act in 1972, which said essentially, look, I don't care how expensive you make a whale. You cannot hunt them anymore or buy and sell their products in this country. You know, bravo. Let's go do more of that. It is. It does. It does seem so anachronistic as to make it difficult to imagine that there was any period of life where it seemed normal to be hunting whales to get their oil to what lubricate gears and, and what were we doing with whale oil and <laughs> using it as fuel? I mean, it's just <laughs> it's it's so crazy, right? That in the first half of the twentieth century, and before I started working on this book. I thought of whale hunting as this 19th century Herman Melville kind of a thing, which it mm. was. And then we turbocharged it in the 20th century when we had ships that were not powered by steam, when we had explosive grenade launching cannons on ships, and we built ships that could take whales that normally sink when they're dead. The reason the right whale is called the right whale is because it was the right whale to hunt in the 19th century. It stayed afloat even after it was dead, mm. so you could carve it up. And the blue whale, the humpback whale, a bunch of other species sink when they're dead. So 19th century whalers couldn't do a lot with them. Oh, we solved that problem in the 20th century. We built these ships where you could drag a whale carcass right on board and carve it up. And so we almost wiped out several species of whale during the 20th century, like you say, to make margarine, lubricants, 
and uh, explosives because there's glycerin in whale right. blubber that you can make nitroglycerin out of. We had other ways to make margarine lubricants and explosives. We didn't absolutely need those whales, but it, because it made, I guess, economic sense, we hunted them almost literally to the ends of the earth and almost off the face of the earth. And then in the rich world, or actually throughout most of the world, we decided not to. And there's one really, really fascinating and terribly depressing coda to this story, which for me shows what happens when you don't have public awareness or response to a government. And it's the story of the Soviet whale hunt, because the Soviet Union signed the same treaty that almost every other country did to say, okay, we're only, I think they signed this in 1948. We're only going to hunt a very, very small number of whales every year so that the population can rebuild itself. The Soviets signed that treaty. They went out and hunted at least a couple hundred thousand they went more whales than their quota allowed over just a couple, three decades. They went around. There were no spotter. There were no international observers on their whaling ships. So they just you know, ignored the treaty like crazy. That was bad enough. The tragic, the farcical tragic part of the story is that we didn't use them for anything. We didn't use whales for anything really important. They didn't use them at all. They took about, they cut the blubber off the whale. That's about 30% of the whale. They threw the rest of the animal back into the ocean. And they didn't even really need the blubber because the Soviet Union was already pretty self sufficient in oil, had huge oil reserves. Mm. So you ask, they ask the question why on earth were they doing this? And the answer is a Stalin five year plan. And the five year plan for the fisheries specified that you have to increase fisheries tonnage every year. A really effective way to do that is to hunt the heaviest <laughs> things the heavy that stuff, qualify yeah. as part of the fisheries industry, which is whales. So wow. the people in charge of the whale hunt became heroes of the Soviet Union, literally had medals pinned on them because of their ability to meet these Stalinist five-year plans that were completely unrelated to what the people of the Soviet Union actually needed or wanted. And right. the, one of the saddest things I put in the book was a, an interaction between one of the Soviet scientists who was on the boats to kind of study what was happening to the whales. He walked into this Soviet bureaucrat's office and said, we need to slow down or stop the whale hunts because our descendants won't be able to see any whales. And the guy responded, our descendants are not going to be the ones to fire me from my job. So in the book, I come down fairly hard on centrally planned economies and totalitarian societies. Yeah. I really don't think I came down too hard on them because they, they, in a time when the whale populations were already so threatened, they went out and wantonly killed hundreds of thousands of more for absolutely no good reason. Unfortunately, democratic and, and capitalistic societies are showing a potential for regress. And I mean, you know, we're having this conversation on a day where I, um, I believe that California has just declared a, a lawsuit against the Trump administration for trying to undermine pollution standards in, in the manufacture of cars. So we have, as hopeful as many of these trends are, we have a, a very stable genius in the White House who <laughs> claims that climate change is a Chinese-engineered hoax, and uh, he is showing some passion for um, a time when our air was far more polluted by automobile exhaust for reasons that are somewhat difficult to fathom. What are the arguments on the other side of this? I mean, like, what, what, are, the, what are the actual arguments against putting a price on carbon? Is there anything that isn't just 
mere greed or, or really just the version of the Soviet functionaries uh, <laughs> observation that, listen, it's, the future generations are not going to be the one to fire me. I think that's a big part of it. And one of the huge problems with global warming is that it is not a obvious today problem. We, we clearly see signs that the earth is warming, but the biggest neg negative impacts are going to be decades down the road. So it's a problem where you could imagine an elected official who doesn't want to face powerful fuel, fossil fuel industry lobbyists, or doesn't want to face people who are unhappy about an in any flavor of price increase. And that person could say, I'm going to kick the can down the road. That's the next administration's problem. I, I think that's part of what's going on. The good arguments against a carbon tax, I, I have a really hard time coming up with any. The only ones I've heard come from kind of the fringe of the left wing of the environmental movement who are so reflexively hostile to markets and to market mechanisms that they reject any attempt to use markets more heavily. I, I don't know what they, what they think will happen in the future to take us to a, a better place, but they're just reflexively hostile to exactly this combination that I love talking about, capitalism and tech progress. I think they want to go back to the, I don't know, the late 18th century. So they're hostile to mm. these you know, market centric ideas. But you bring up the fact that the Trump administration is trying to roll back pollution protection in lots of different ways. We clearly see it with auto emissions. We see it with methane, inadvertent methane emissions from the, the natural gas from the fracking industry. Mm. We see wetlands protections being rolled back. And you could say, are these things sensible to do because we've, we've overshot with our pollution regulation. You know, the, the air today is so much cleaner, 95 plus percent cleaner than it was in the early 70s. Have, is, have we gone far enough? Is the cost benefit calculation different enough now that we've overshot? We need to kind of let a little more pollution happen. That's a, a sensible question to ask, but we know the answer to that question. There's all this research that shows how bad even our current levels of pollution are. And I've seen these amazing studies where they looked at what happened to disease levels, asthma levels, and things like that in neighborhoods, I think on the New Jersey Turnpike, where they got rid of the toll booth and replaced it with a sensor so that cars don't have to sit in line and idle and wait to pay 75 mm -hmm. cents or whatever. When you do that, you see the surrounding neighborhoods get healthier. If you look at even modern electricity generation plants that shut down, the kids living downwind from those plants get healthier. Their test scores go up in school. I look at stuff like that. I think we are not anywhere near overshooting on our pollution controls and our pollution regulation. So all those moves by the current administration are really disheartening to me. We have not won the battle against pollution yet. We just need to be, we need to be strict. We need to be vigilant. We have shown since the passage of the Clean Air and the Clean Water Acts it's perfectly possible to grow an economy, to have it grow at a healthy rate, to have just really attractive corporate profits while clamping down on pollution. You know, the, let's not walk away from that. Yeah, I've often thought that the, the battle for hearts and minds for climate change should be waged on a different front around air pollution. I mean, just forget about climate change. Let's just argue that the current level of air pollution is unacceptable. And let's drive that down. Let's drive it down with renewable energy and electric cars and, you know, making all the same decisions we should make 
to mitigate the climate crisis, but it never would occur to me that you could find any takers for increasing air pollution consciously, right? I mean, and, and yet that seems to be what's happening. Anyone who isn't just aghast at Trump's moves here you know, with respect to California seems to just not care about their lungs. I mean, just, I mean, you just, you <laughs> or know, their kids, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and it'd be very easy to get the real time health consequences of all of this. I mean, there, there's in any city like Los Angeles, there, there have to be tens of thousands of cardiovascular deaths and deaths from, you know, emphysema and, and, you know, chronic pulmonary disease that are attributable to particulate pollution. And it's just, of course, we want to drive that down to as close to zero as possible. And there, there are whole new industries opening up that are making that possible. That's right. It's just the idea that this is a zero-sum contest between economic growth and our health is purely a fiction. Or, or this was a fact that was much discussed you know, early on in the presidential campaign in 2016 when, when Trump was championing himself as the, as the defender of, of coal miners everywhere, you know, of whom there are about 75,000 75, people, you know, miners and everyone else included associated with the coal industry. All in in the industry, yeah, right? Yeah, this is, you know, people working at desk jobs in the coal industry as well. And there's something like 500,000 clean tech jobs alone in California, right? It's just madness. Yeah. And, and to say again, it's reasonable to ask the question, have we gone too far with some of our environmental protections? So that's a fair question to ask. We've answered it. We know the answer to this one. I'm, I'm categorically with you. We, the bang for the buck of continuing to clean up the air in America is just jumps off the page at you. It's just, it's just yeah. overwhelming. In the debate around the Clean Air Act in 1970, on the floor of Congress, somebody said, a mayor in, in one of my constituent cities said, if you want this town to grow, it has to stink. We used to believe that. This awareness of the serious health risks, the health harms of pollution is a recent awareness, but we have it. And we know that we're still not at any kind of, you know, cost-benefit trade-off point on that curve, we have to keep being vigilant about this particular externality. And we have to keep holding our politicians to account. We have to keep not believing the press releases from companies in, in high-pollution, high-carbon industries. This is incumbent on us as citizens. Right. But I do have to add here that the, the very unpopular point that burning wood in your fireplace recreationally is part of this problem. It's, it's actually yep. it's the worst particulate pollution you can impinge <laughs> upon your neighbor. And uh, the, the fact that the, the press release from your childhood <laughs> in the form of nostalgia and sentimentality around how nice the wood fire smells and how cozy it is to be by it, all of that is dangerous bullshit that you have to figure <laughs> out how to ream out of your head. Because as is the notion that the planet will be better off if we all kind of go back to the land, if we turn right. our backs on these industrial economies that we've built and on capitalism and tech progress that we're going to tread more lightly on the planet. This is lunacy, right? We're going to, we will, if we stop, you know, getting our electricity from big centralized plants, what we, we're going to burn wood pellets, we're going to chop down trees, we're going to denude the planet, 7.7 .7 billion of us. 
we're going to denude the planet I, probably in a matter of months. And boy, that's a real ecological collapse. What's your take on UBI as a solution to part of these problems, I guess the, the wealth inequality problem above all? The planetary the concern that is, is number one for me is clearly global warming. When it comes to the human condition, the number one concern for me is exactly what you're talking about, what we talked about earlier, which is the fact that there are these people and communities that are getting left behind as these tectonic forces of globalization and technology put our economy into a different place. One thing I learned writing the book is that since the early 1980s, for example, we have given an amount of farmland back to nature. We don't farm on it anymore equal in size to the state of Washington. That's a lot. And that's fantastic. Forests can regrow there. We just heard today the press release about how bird populations have declined so quickly in America. Great. Farm less land. Let forests come back. Let the birds come back there. That's fantastic. The challenge is there were people farming that land, making their living off it. And because that land is no longer economically viable, we're giving it back to nature. Those people need something to do. And I really think that they're in that low point of the elephant graph. And so a really important set of questions is around what's the right thing to do for those kinds of communities? Because the wrong thing to do is just to say to them, hey, you can just move to you know, the superstar cities out there. You can move to SF or Boston or New York. A lot of them say, yeah, no, I'm not, that's actually not what I'm going to do. And again, our toolkit for dealing with those communities, for for revitalizing them economically, man, the track record is not great. So you bring up this interesting idea of a, of a UBI, universal basic income. If the problem is that they don't have enough money, just give them money. Just have a check show up every month from the government. I'm a much bigger fan of a thing called a negative income tax, whereas if you're out there working, you're earning some level of income, but it's not enough to give you the life that we think you should have because you're out there trying to play by the rules. We for most people, we take away income with the tax system. Just run that in reverse. Top up people's income using something like the tax system and increase their income with a, what's called an earned income tax credit. That's what we have right now in America. Or just more broadly, it's a negative income tax. I like that approach better because mm -hmm. I've come to believe really deeply in the value of work, not for some kind of esoteric Calvinist reason, but because work gives you structure, dignity, community, meaning, it embeds you in, in a network of people, it builds social capital. These are, these are tremendously important things to do. So I'm a big fan of a negative income tax. And the thought experiment I run for myself is to think about these communities that are seeing these terrifying rises in deaths of despair, drug overdoses, chronic liver disease, and suicide. And I ask myself, which of those problems will be solved by a check from the government showing up every month? And my answer is very, very few, if any. And then I say, well, how much will those problems be helped if jobs and work come back to these communities? And my hopeful answer is a lot more. Uh, so I, I want to double down on solutions right. that kind of bring, bring back jobs, work, economic activity to these kinds of communities. I think that'll be a more productive thing to do. I, I guess the, the rejoinder from the proponents of UBI would be that you could give it at a level that wouldn't be canceling of the, the impetus to work. And also people, you know, people work for many other reasons beyond just having to, having to based on 
economic necessity. So it would open the door to you know more creative work or, or work that people would be able to take you know risks creatively to find jobs that they would find more satisfying. And also it would put a value on types of work that are you know currently valued at zero in our economy by you know just taking care of children, taking care of you know an elder, stuff that's done in people's private lives that obviously has real social capital, but which is uncompensated. Yeah, and that that second point to me is by far the more powerful one. Let's be clear, there are people doing tremendously important work, taking care, like you say, of of an old relative or looking after kids inside the home. This is massively important work to do for a society. They get compensated zero dollars per hour on that. So a UBI, kind of a no questions asked check, would absolutely compensate that kind of person. If we wanted to increase the amount of people or the amount of creativity, innovation, entrepreneurship out there, I'd be much more in favor of doing something like what every other rich country does with healthcare, which is to make it universally available at some level. Mm. I saw a great tweet from from an entrepreneur that I know today. She said, to to start a company today in America, you have to be some combination of privileged and crazy. I think that's a great way to look at it. And so when you look at our entrepreneurial class, they are some combination of privileged and crazy. I think emphasis on the privileged if we wanted to unleash a lot more of that and give people the freedom to take more risks with their work and their lives, like take their health and their healthcare off the mm-hmm. table. Let, let's do that. Right. Okay. So Andrew, I have a few uh, rapid fire bonus questions. Are you game to answer uh, some of these? <laughs> do, let's okay. do a lightning round. Yeah, let's go yes. for it. Okay. So, I mean, you can be as prolix as you want, but uh, you can also be brief. Good. So if you had one piece of advice for a person who wants to succeed in your field, and you could conceive of your field however you like. You're, you're a man of many talents here. What would that advice be? Find a good mentor early and work your tail off for them. Demonstrate your value. What, if anything, do you wish you had done differently in your 20s, 30s, or 40s? I had a bit of an unconventional education, and I wish I had played it right more, a lot more down the middle. So for example, I am not a classically trained economist. And if, and if I had gone to a very good graduate economics program and gone through that meat grinder, I mm. think my toolkit would be better than it is right now. And so if I could rewind, that's clearly one of the things that I would do. I'm not saying I got a bad education at all, but I, I, was a, I think I was too unorthodox. So you can be a, an unorthodox person or thinker or have kind of a jazzy career while doing the foundational educational things in a conventional way. 10 years from now, what do you think you'll regret doing too much of or too little of at this point in your life? Uh, I'm going to give a completely self-contradicting answer. I think mm-hmm. I'll look back in 10 years and said, you should, have, uh, you should have done more and better work and you should have enjoyed your life more. And the ongoing resolution of that yeah. question yeah, yeah. You know, plagues me. Put that in a pill and I will take it every day. <laughs> will, you, will you take that pill too? Yeah, because you know, I've learned that, for example, I'm uh, learning to kiteboard, and it's just the most joyous, it's the most amazing oh, nice. feeling to do that. And I love it for all kinds of geeky reasons, because it is this product of huge amounts of individual effort and innovation, because a couple of lunatics 20, you know, a generation ago said, you know what we should do? We should strap this new thing called a snowboard to our feet. And have some kind of sail kite 
drag us across the surface of the ocean. And holy Toledo, you know, lives were lost and many shoulders were dislocated to make it the tractable, safe sport that it is today. So, you know, should I go be a, a kiteboard bum for a couple of years? Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, I there are a couple of books that I know I want to write. There are questions I want to dig in on. And so I, I have no real idea how to resolve that paradox. So I kind of muddle through both in a poor way. And in addition to that, you're now being told every hour that sleep is the most important thing for your well-being and you should be getting nine hours of it a night. So you can't sleep less to solve this problem. That's apparently. right. You can't put, it's a really bad solution. And I'm convinced by that great book, Why We Sleep, I'm convinced that you can't shortcut on that and have a happy, fulfilled, productive, long life. Yeah. So yeah, this is a tough one. What is something that you're right about that is very controversial? I feel like maybe the thesis of your current book fits in there, but do you have something that you believe that you are right about, yet most people upon hearing it will, will disagree with you on? Idiosyncratically, I think that the thesis of this book is correct. Uh, duh, right? But I do believe that we really have learned how to simultaneously improve the human condition and the state of nature. And most people, I think, don't believe that. A little more generally, I think that the current distaste for nuclear power is mm. not grounded in evidence and is serving us really, really poorly, especially in, a, in an overheating world. We have one power source that is clean, green, safe, scalable, and somewhere near cost-efficient. And we're, we're, we're running away from it around the world. This is lunacy to me. I generally agree, but did you happen to see the, uh, the recent series Chernobyl? I'm in the middle of watching it right now. It's <laughs> gripping TV. A lot of its a lot of its specifics are wrong. They're, they're just it's dramatic license going on, right. and I think it's driving us farther away from rationality about nuclear power. Even though it's incredibly good entertainment, and I'm I'm literally watching it right now. No, it's it's probably the worst piece of PR for uh, oh the, the, the Renaissance we need in nuclear. That's right. What book should everybody read? Everyone should read Edward Tufte's wonderful books about presenting quantitative information. And mm -hmm. I think the first one is just called The Visual Display of Quantitative Information, and it will turn you into a complete chart snob, and you will never look at a chart or think about presenting your evidence the same way. You'll do a better job at it. That, yeah. that was a, that's one of those books that, that really changed how I see things and how I try to do my work. Right. Nice. What negative experience? one that you would not wish to repeat has most profoundly changed you for the better? When I was a faculty member at Harvard, I did not get tenure. And mm. at the time, wow, was that a bummer. That was, that was a professional blow because I'd spent about 15 years of my life shooting for that. And I was part of a community where that's the thing that you value and you're going to go do that. And, uh, and to have my school and my colleagues come back and say, it's not going to happen here, well, that, that was a pretty dark time. Yeah. Luckily, I I had an offer to go do something similar but different at MIT and I took them up on that and you know the 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 weird in a great way journey that I've been on for the past 10 years has been the great professional blessing of my life and would not have happened except for this deeply unpleasant event that happened to me. Yeah. Yeah, you're the, you're the second person to have that be your answer there and and Is that right? Who was the other one? The uh, physicist Sean Carroll, who's now at Caltech, who I, I think was at 
think it was the University of Chicago where he didn't get tenure. But yeah, that oh, was wow. like, you know, one of the worst experiences of his life that had a silver lining. Yeah. And Sam, like you probably know, academia is this very weird insular world. And when you're part of living inside that bubble, you know, the thing that you that, every, that every, your early career is oriented around is this thing called getting tenure. And it's just this brass ring that's held out there. And to not get it is many flavors of bummer all wrapped together. And the if I'd been at that point and like said, what's the next 10 years of your life going to look like? This would not have been it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you could solve just one mystery as a, a scientist or economist or intellectual journalist, wherever you want to point yourself, what would it be? I'm going to give you way too broad an answer. And uh, giving this one to you, mm -hmm. this is me uh, like leading with my chin. I think if we could uh, solve consciousness or understand how consciousness works, that, that would be one of the great human triumphs. Yeah, yeah. That's mine too. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think, I think we're just poking at it. We're so far away from it. And the, the person or the team that has the, the Eureka or Eurekas to get us there, that's a huge human achievement. Yeah. If you could resurrect one person from history and put them in our world today, and you could give them the benefit of a modern education if needed, who would you bring back to the team? I love this question. Abraham Lincoln. And I had not thought about that question before you asked it, but yeah. somebody who was just such, a, such an amazing human being, such a mensch, and who knew how to get himself elected and fight and win political battles. Holy cow, do we need a Lincoln now? Yeah. Okay, last question. The, the Jurassic Park question. If we're ever in a position to recreate the T-Rex, should we do it? Yes. Yeah. And, and shorter term than that, I, I really hope, I am cautiously optimistic that I'm going to live to see a, a mastodon or a woolly mammoth again. And yeah. wow, will that, will that be a good day in my life? All right. The, the obverse of that, though, when we're in a position to annihilate the mosquito, should we do it? I want to say yes, just because that, that creature is responsible for so much human misery and so many human deaths every year. I understand that that is opening up a new category of toolkit. I have some faith in our ability to do that correctly, but I, I understand that it's opening, up, it's opening up a whole new box and we had better be careful and vigilant about it. Yeah, I'm all in on that one. I'm I'm willing to push the button myself. So you'll, you're you're in. You'll yeah, gene drive yeah. and you'll get rid of malaria. Yes, yeah, it, yes. it's such a scourge for humanity. I'm willing to roll the dice for all of humanity <laughs> that whatever the downstream effects are of killing the mosquito, you know, the bats and whatever else eat them. You'll take that deal. I'll take it. Just give me the CRISPR button and I'll do it. <laughs> uh, well, listen, Andrew, it's been great to get you on the podcast. I wish you the best of luck with this book for once in a blue moon. I mean, it really, the last time it happened, it was with Steve Pinker. It's a joy to help amplify a message that is at bottom uh, really hopeful and energizing. So I just get out there and, and spread the word because it's, it really is a breath of fresh air. I, I really appreciate that. And I, when I think of the tribe that I want to ally myself with, your name and Pinker's name are right there at the top of it. So Thank you for having me on and keep doing the stuff that you're doing. It's, it's fantastic and, and really needed. Okay. Well, as I said, that was very encouraging. And it was interesting to be recording this just as the Swedish teenager Greta Thunberg was achieving so much prominence in the news. Her highly emotional castigation of world leaders of the UN was an interesting counterpoint 
to what we spoke about here. Needless to say, I'm convinced that climate change is a major problem, and it's a problem that will likely exacerbate many other problems, like political instability and refugee crises. So it really should be one of our principal concerns now. But I'm also convinced that we are not going to conserve our way out of it. I think we will innovate our way out of it. And therefore, a sustainable future is one in which we rely on clean sources of power and drive electric cars. It's not one where we stop having babies or begin making everything out of hemp. And it's certainly not a future in which we declare that capitalism can't be made to work. I definitely share Andrew's view that the way forward is to correct for market failures with sane policies. I mean, for instance, a revenue-neutral carbon tax, which yields a carbon dividend that goes first and foremost to the people who can most use it, that sounds like a fantastic idea. So we need innovation in that space. Whether Greta Thunberg is helping or hurting, I really don't know. I see two reasons to worry about her. I'm certainly worried for her own personal well-being. She seems to be under a tremendous amount of stress. But she also seems perfectly crafted to bring out the crazies on both sides of the debate about climate change, where people on the right deny that it's even happening and then attack this young woman personally as a hysteric or worse, and also allege that she's being cynically used by socialist nutcases to advance what is at bottom an economic argument and a false one. And then the far left obliges by amplifying the voices of its socialist nutcases, who demand that we pull the brakes on capitalism, and who describe climate change as a problem of white patriarchy. As you heard on today's podcast, the real problem of climate change is that we now have to figure out how to get everyone on Earth to start using the best technology we already have in hand, right? And this is especially true of countries like India and China where most of the people are. I obviously wish Greta Thunberg all the best, but I doubt we're going to find the path forward being led by the Joan of Arc character she has become. That was Caitlin Flanagan's observation. What we need is a sober description of the problem and a clear path to incentivizing the solutions. And no doubt this is a topic I will touch again in greater depth as we all heat up. Until next time. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, like my Ask Me Anything episodes, as well as the bonus questions from many of these interviews. You'll also get advanced tickets to my live events. You'll find all of these things and more at samharris.org. And thank you for supporting the show. Listeners like you make it possible.